0: Hello world. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host Brian Kaderna, and I'm very excited to have a special guest on the show today to help us kick off the month of December and this holiday season. That is none other than Emily Walper. And what we're going to be addressing is something that we can't seem to get enough of is the college experience. In particular, how do you select the college? How do you actually get into that college? and what role the student and the parent should play in that entire process. So just to give you a quick bio, if you're not familiar with Ms. Walper, Emily Walper is the founder and president of eWalper Inc. Admissions and Consulting. She's formerly the Columbia University Admissions Officer, having served Columbia College, the Foo Foundation School of Engineering and Applied Science, and the Columbia Business School. Emily has read literally thousands of applications and has served on numerous selection committees. Upon leaving Columbia in 1999, Emily, who has a bachelor's in religion and a master's in educational theater, began consulting to applicants privately, sharing that knowledge and inside expertise that she had gained during her years on the admission side. She has a deep commitment to her students, in particular high school students, to discover and express their academic and extracurricular passions. This focus arises from her own love of singing, writing, traveling, and community service with a guiding belief that the thoughtful pursuit of interests can enrich all of our lives and help inform our understanding of ourselves. What she does is more than just helping a child select their institution and put together a nice application. Emily specializes in getting extremely creative with some of these extracurricular pursuits. For instance, she helped a young high school student who had an affinity for pets find an opportunity to train a seeing-eye dog and then leverage that to actually start a foundation to raise funds for others to train seeing-eye dogs and match them up with the blind. Thereafter, they were able to neatly package this beautiful passion and addition to this young lady's resume and showcase that to other schools. And you can believe that little additions like that are what's going to separate one student from another when dealing with the most competitive universities and colleges in the world. While Emily's focus is definitely in the Ivy League schools and some of the top ranked institutions, what we're going to address today is applicable to any high school student trying to find their way and also that parent trying to understand how this multi billion dollar industry of higher education actually works. So without further ado, please join me and Emily in a great conversation on the Kaderna Podcast. Here we go. The Kaderna Podcast. The Kaderna
1: Podcast.
0: The Kaderna Podcast. How did did you know early on that this is something you wanted to get into in this space?
1: Well, I was an admissions intern when I was a senior at Vassar College, and I loved my job. I thought I was the luckiest student on campus to have this chance to talk to kids who were coming to visit about what a Vassar education could do for them. And I realized that I could do that more, and not only at Vassar necessarily. Um, I wanted to move into the city, so I was very fortunate to learn that Columbia was hiring in their admissions office. I applied for the job, um, and I was very lucky to get it. Uh, so my my life in the admissions world actually started as a college student talking to kids about what college could be like. And so
0: you were one of the tour guides, kind of showing people the campus. I actually
1: was like never that. a tour guide. I was I was the rare non tour tour guide who just got hired to be a senior intern. What senior interns huh. did was they. Um, We got to speak at admissions sessions, so at information sessions. So a family would come to visit the school, and uh, an admissions officer and a senior intern would speak together about what was available. Um, And I also answered emails that were coming into the college. Um, And at that time, believe it or not, that was a little bit revolutionary because email was new, and now I'm dating myself. (laughs) Um, But uh, the senior interns also handled those inquiries okay but i never had to walk backwards or point to buildings.
0: <laughs> that wasn't that your wasn't thing. my gig okay no. got it got it that's pretty cool so when you were in college you, you, that's not something obviously you were studying for it just kind of happened that you got thrust into that role and then you you fell in love with it
1: no i was studying religion actually um huh. but you know on a philosophical sidebar one of the things i'm really passionate about is helping students realize that the things they study don't necessarily have to become their jobs Um, If they study things that are interesting to them, they will learn how to think, they will learn how to ask questions, they will become um, intellectually agile, and those skills can be applied to so many different career tracks.
0: Okay, so do you, I mean, are you one of the folks out there that thinks, you know, college is for everyone or, um, I I know, it's just, especially speaking with so many young people, like you said, they don't always know where they want to go, what they want to study, it's so hard to kind of foresee that future so do you see, maybe my question is, do you see college as more of a, a kind of a, a learning ground for a particular subject or just more exposure to what the world has to offer them?
1: I think it can be both. Okay. Um, and I think it's different things for different people, depending on uh, their dreams, their, their capacity. Not everyone mm-hmm. is up for the same types of challenges, but I think that different college settings can give students opportunities to become the best that they can be. Um, yeah. So do I think the exact same college is for everyone? I don't. Do I think that there are educational spaces after high school that are varied and can be right for everyone? Yeah, I do.
0: Okay. Yes, yeah, so there's a place for everyone to fit for sure. Hopefully. <laughs> One would hope. And so take me through a little bit of the process now. And I, I know a lot of our listeners want to hear you have somebody, let's, let's say that they're, they're in high school, you know, parents are encouraging them to go to college. They're trying to kind of find their way. Like, when, when should a high school student, I guess, start thinking about what's the next step of education or where do I go after this kind of structured, formal education I've been used to since kindergarten?
1: I always tell parents when they call me that the best time to start actively engaging the process um, is when college is coming up at the dinner table. Or in a car ride you know when when a student is alone with a parent or alone with an adult uh, who they trust and has the opportunity to say hey is it true that it's really hard to get into college or is it true that I need all A's if I want to go anywhere you know when those types of questions are coming up um, it makes sense to address them thoughtfully and not to push a student off and say oh you know what it's too early for you to be thinking about that um, because if they're thinking about it, we can't stop them. Correct. Um, yeah. So we might as well start to answer their questions. Yeah. Um, I think that ninth grade is right for some students to be thinking actively, and probably early for others. Um, but by tenth grade, most students are awake. They're realizing, okay, this is real. Mm-hmm. This counts. Um, someone on, you know, someone's going to be evaluating me when I'm in my twelfth grade year, and I should, I should probably start getting pretty serious about this.
0: Got it. And then, you know, being a little bit removed from college personally, like when, uh, what, what are the colleges looking at? Are they looking at that sophomore year, that junior year? You hear so much about junior year that, oh, this, that's the biggest year of your life. Is it really like all coming down to that year? It
1: doesn't all come down to junior year, but a lot happens in the junior year. Okay. Um, junior year tends to be a time when students who are working towards leadership opportunities can begin to get them. Um, It's a time when there's a lot of standardized testing happening Mm. for students who are taking SAT, ACT, SAT subject tests. A lot of that happens in the junior year. So I would argue that the grades matter from ninth grade on. Um, But that 11th grade is when it all starts to really coalesce. So if you've been doing very well in ninth and 10th, then the junior year is is the time to show that you know what it gets harder, but I'm still doing great. Yeah. Um, if a student has struggled in ninth and tenth, junior year may be an opportunity to make a big recovery and and have a really strong performance. And on the flip side, junior year is probably not an optimal time to start weakening. <laughs> <or Yeah>. having <laughs> to kind having, of fall uh, off the wagon, uh, right? Yep. To fall off. Um, so i think those are the reasons why students start to feel real pressure in junior year sure Um, it starts to feel like it's happening
0: like the real Um, world's coming at them yeah
1: well right and i'm glad you said that because i think one piece of this process that that a lot of people don't focus on is the is the psychological component what is what is a teenager experiencing when all the conversation is around college and what are they experiencing in junior year thinking about the fact that the next year is their last year at home if they're gonna leave for college Mm -hmm. Um, I think we always need to be sensitive to that and to recognize that as we're talking at a high level about you know how they should do academically what tests they should consider taking what colleges they should visit with every one of those steps they are also processing the fact that their life is about to change in in a very significant way and that everything they know to have been their their surroundings, their truth, is about to shift. Um, and that doesn't have to happen. Families can make a whole host of different choices. Students can stay home. Sure. Um, but if we're, if we're assuming that the conversation is about students who are going to leave for college and live on a campus, then they're starting to realize this is going to happen. And as much as it's a very exciting thing, and um, it's always been presented as a great opportunity, it's also gonna cause separation anxiety and and concerns about what what's life gonna be like out there am I gonna do my own laundry Um, you know it's it's kind of a reality check yeah so I I always check in with my students about those things too if it seems like they're resisting the process I want to know why you know is it are you worried you know or is is it something else
0: and do you find, so, and I guess to, to kind of uh, preface the question I was going to have, are you working more with the students or with their parents or a little bit of both? Like, give us some insight as to what that normal conversation is like. Who's at the table?
1: So I consider the parent my client and the child my student. Okay. And um, and I think both relationships are really important. Um, and they vary from family to family. So I work with a limited number of families per per school year um, or per class year I should say so I work with between 15 and 20 families per class year per graduating class year so I'm able to get to know these folks really well and every family is different so I may have a family where the student is a little slow to warm up to the relationship but the parents are calling me constantly Mm -hmm. Um, and I may have another family where the parents are quite busy and it takes a lot for them to get on a call with me but the student is very proactive and I'm hearing from them all the time. Um, so I'm able to tailor my work according to what a family needs. But, but I think everyone involved has a place at the table. Got it. Um, in my industry, consultants are very careful to make it clear that the student is the focus of our work. And, and I do think that's very important. But I also don't think that I could possibly not also be Helping and supporting their parents.
0: And do you have some sort of kind of uh, like letter of engagement where the student's fully committed, the parents fully committed? I assume you probably find instances where maybe the parents are very pro college or a particular school or, or they have this track they dream of for their child and maybe the kid has a different vision for themselves. How do you, you know, kind of rectify that disconnect or do you really just kind of follow the student's lead at that point? Like, how is that handled?
1: That is a great question. I know I (laughs) joked with you earlier about always saying that's a great question, but that is a really great question. Um, I, at the end of the day, view my role in a situation like that as being an advocate for the student. Okay. And I'm very upfront with parents when they contact me and consider engaging me um, that if there is a situation like that where the student's needs are different from those of the parents, that... They are hiring someone who's going to advocate for their kid. Okay. Um, now, that being said, I may, I may think the parents are totally on the money and the student is not hearing them. Yeah. Um, and in that case, I draw upon mediation training that I have, actually. and I, And I get everyone around the table and I say, listen, I'm hearing that we're not all on the same page. I'd like to understand where that's coming from. And I'd like to help kind of get to a place where we can all feel good about what the first choice school is, let's say. Yeah. Um, But I always remind everyone that at the end of the day the student is the one going to college. Sure. And while the parents may think that the next four years should be spent at one place, if the student feels like that's just really not a a place where they'll be happy, then then I always have to advocate for the student.
0: Okay. And how much uh, does it enter into the conversation as far as you've got a, a sophomore or junior student that you're working with as far as what do you want to study? What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, so do you kind of delve into that or is it more, hey, let's just get into the best, most renowned school we can. And then once you plant your feet you know, on that campus, then we'll figure out what it is you want to do with your life. Like, where where does that come into play? Because I, I know me personally, like, there was, there was no clue as a high schooler, like, what I was going to be one day. So I was more of, oh, you just get into a good school and then figure it out. But what do you counsel people on?
1: So I actually, I wouldn't say I'm either of those specifically. Okay. Um, I, I'm not, like, all about the brand of a school. I'm interested in the fit.
2: Okay, is, this a it. Great,
1: is this a great place for this student to be? And certainly families that hire me do have objectives as it relates to brand. And and I'm happy to talk strategically with them about that and to help them think about the places that are really hard to get into, if it's appropriate for the student. Um, but I'm I'm really interested in fit. What, what will the next four years be like on that campus? I don't want my students to just survive college because they have a big brand name on their resume. I want them to thrive in college. I want them to grow. Yep. And not everyone grows the same in in the same places so you may have all the numbers to get into you know i'm going to throw around random names you know you might have all the numbers to be a viable candidate to harvard but you might actually be a better fit for brown you know just talking about ivy's let's say okay um so and as far as career uh i'm not a a career pusher okay um I have students who come to me and they have a goal. They wanna be doctors, they wanna be lawyers, and I and I'm really happy to nurture that and help them look at colleges that will guide them on that path. Okay. But I have a lot of students who have no idea what they wanna be when they grow up and I and I love that and I support that because we don't even know what the jobs are gonna be for them. Exactly. You know, like if, if we're so focused on channeling students into specific career tracks that don't exist on the other side of college. Yep. We've, we have failed them. So I'm most interested in helping students find places where they'll learn to think. and okay. They'll learn to ask the hard questions. They'll learn how to address problems. Gotcha. That's what we need, I think.
0: Uh, and I agree wholeheartedly. There's so many things where it's like you hear we're teaching the wrong subjects, that we're teaching like yesterday's news. So I, I'm totally on board with you there. What do you, on the financial side a little bit, you know, where I'm coming into play a lot, if it's on the back end, you hear so much about student loans. You know, I've certainly wrote a lot of articles on the topic. Do you talk with with families or with the kid about, hey, we're going to go to this college, it's going to cost X amount of money. Maybe they don't know what they want to study yet. But do you bring into play any of the financial reality of the career path? Or are you more Let's find your passion and the money will follow at some point. Like, what's your thought on that?
1: I don't end up getting into a lot of financial conversations with my students. Um, But I do find that sometimes they're coming feeling kind of existentially conflicted between what they think they're supposed to do to make money and what they love to do. Okay. And in a situation like that, I always try to remind young people that Every job that you have, whether it's something you love or hate, is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. And if you choose something just because you think it's going to make you rich or it's going to be easy, you still have to trade in on all of those efforts. Yep. So if we if we start out knowing you're going to have to work hard regardless, you're going Correct. to have to make choices. Wouldn't we be better off if we put ourselves in a space where we loved what we did? Sure. And so, yeah, the work is beautiful because it's hard, but I love
0: it. But you like doing that. yeah? Right?
1: So I do try to encourage my students to own their interests and their passions and to think about creative ways that they might pursue them.
0: Okay. I mean, I think you're a prime example where you said you went to school to study religion and now we fast forward and you have this thriving business as an entrepreneur that you've created so, I mean, even if I could ask you a personal question, like, do you feel you picked, like, the right major? Or are there times where you're like, man, I wish I was in accounting or finance or something that would help with my entrepreneurial path? Or did what you studied in religion have a big impact maybe on what you're counseling nowadays?
1: So that's so funny. I actually, um, I didn't know that I was going to major in religion. I, I went to college expecting to major in theater. Okay. Um And my freshman year first semester they had so many students admitted who wanted to study theater that only half of those students got drama 101 wow and i wasn't one of them so all of a sudden i was on campus i thought i had my major figured out as a freshman which is kind of a joke already but <laughs> so i went to the registrar and i st- i talked to a person who i who i i said i don't know what to do i didn't get drama 101 like what do I take? And he actually helped me look through the course catalog. And he said, ooh, I've heard this professor Mark Gladys is fabulous. Maybe take his class. And it was a religion class. And I thought, hmm, I've been curious about religion. I, I liked Hebrew school. I was yep. that kid. Okay. You know, like, maybe I'll, maybe I'll check it out. Huh. Um, and I did. I took a ver- like an intro level religious philosophy class. Yep. And it was not focused on any specific religion um and it was incredible it was the most thought-provoking work i had done the most interesting readings the most engaged engaging lectures so the next semester i took another religion class with another professor whose name was mark a different mark okay um and he became my mentor and he's still a dear friend and um i just couldn't get enough of those classes so it was my academic career undergraduate was built purely on curiosity And my father kept saying, Don't you wanna take an econ class? Don't you wanna take an econ class? And I just kept saying, No, I'm not interested in it. I'm never gonna be involved in business. Yeah. And so that's like the big family joke, right? (laughs) Like, (laughs) look at you now. (laughs) (laughs) Because right, you know, twenty years in I'm running a, a business. Um, but do I you know, I think it might have been cool to take an accounting class. Yeah. I'm not I have no regrets that I didn't major in those things. Yeah. Um but now in my life, I am curious about the underpinnings of economic philosophy and, and how accounting works. Yep. Yeah, I, yeah, I it, it touches
0: cool every stuff. aspect of life. That's what yeah. I always say. And so then in, it, I know we're digressing a little bit, but then you got your master's after you had studied religion.
1: Yes, and, I did. Okay. And
0: what was your master's in again? I
1: have a master's in educational theater.
0: Okay. Um, and what would that be to actually like teach people that want to get into theater?
1: So Educational theater is, is, an, is a British discipline, actually, that has started to kind of find its way into the way we teach in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and it presupposes that anything can be learned using theater. Hmm. So educational theater, a, an example would be you're teaching history and you want the students to feel um, more of a connection with the life, life and times of colonial America. So you would actually set up a dramatic opportunity for students where let's say you would put different sorts of personal artifacts in the middle of a circle, a hat, a locket, you know, a flower, a picture of a, a black and white picture of some, you know, someone, a little painting, a sketch, and the student each get to pick one of those items. And then you tell them to build a narrative around that item, pretend okay. they're a person, you know who would have interacted with that item and now the student becomes someone else it becomes an acting exercise but they learn about history while they're doing it yeah so you know an amazing you know you would say like maybe hamilton is a great example yeah definitely that's what i was thinking because how many students who take the ap us history test now memorize all of that from hamilton um so that's what educational theater does. My interest in educational theater specifically was ways that theater can be used to teach leadership. Um, because something that kind of underscores all of my work is, is leadership, is thinking about how people become leaders, what types of activities and opportunities can, can teach leadership skills in a way that, that's almost invisible, you know, but you kind of see students emerging. Finding their their interests and and taking ownership of them and then teaching others. Yeah. So I was a little bit of a rogue educational theater student. Okay. (laughs) I I was the only one who was not a teacher. um, And I was the only one who was writing all of my papers on leadership. Yeah. Um, But but that was that fascinated me sure and uh, and still does
0: i love that idea cuz it takes me back to like history class even when you were in grammar school and it's that teacher that could kind of take you back to the revolutionary war and draw that picture where you felt like you were there you know that sticks with you forever as opposed to just kind of flipping through the pages of a textbook so
1: it does and it also makes you feel connected to the human experience yeah. and the common threads of you know throughout time yeah so that's that's what it that's what education that's really cool is about.
0: and i'm glad you touched on leadership because that can kind of bring it you know back to the idea of all right we're trying to get into the best college possible so we take that that junior that you had referenced where now the world's coming at them so much is on their plate they're feeling a little stressed like this is it what what is a typical college maybe they're all different you could tell us but what is a typical college looking at are they saying all right you know a prerequisites this sit or we're weighting 50% of their profile to their SAT score? Are they looking at the class rank? Or if they're the captain of the football team, does that outweigh that stuff? Like, Take us through that, if you could, since I haven't been there at Columbia and whatnot.
1: Sure. So I do want to contextualize and say that I'm going to be speaking specifically about selective and highly selective schools. Okay, because you deal mostly with
0: Ivy Leagues, is that correct?
1: No, I work with students applying to a whole host of colleges, but I'd say, you know, mostly around the top 30 to 50 colleges in the country.
0: Got it. Okay. So...
1: I, I don't I don't want to discourage a parent let's say right now and what I'm how I'm going to answer your question whose child maybe has B's and C's and, and not a lot of activities there 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 would be opportunities for that student too sure um, but to answer your question in the in the world that I that I engage every day yeah. um, the the grades and test scores are the beginning of the conversation so if you're talking about a highly selective school, students know they need, A's, maybe the occasional B, in the hardest classes their school offers. And every high school is different. So that may be um, AP classes or IB classes or honors. It might be a school that has their own special curriculum. They don't use any of those titles, but they still have the hardest math and the hardest science. And admissions officers are responsible for knowing what those are and for knowing the high schools well enough to be able to say, this student is taking the most rigorous curriculum available. Okay. So we we're looking for academic performance, curricular rigor, and then the, the testing, you know, should be within the range of what that school is publishing as their middle 50 percent. Um, once you have all of those academic pieces in place and an admissions officer can say to themselves, "Hmm, okay, I could get this, like committee would be interested in this, then it really starts to be a conversation about the student's extracurricular life. What does that student do outside of the classroom? What are her passions, interests, concerns? How is she dedicating her time?
0: Okay. Um, so to jump in there, the grades, the academics, that is a prerequisite of sorts where you say, OK, I need to fit the profile of that school I applied to. Yeah,
1: you have to be Either. in the game. Yeah. You know, the admissions officers are responsible for creating a class of students who can succeed on keep up campus. with each other yeah yeah so you need does to one sure.
0: outweigh the other as far as like the testing like the sat that we all hear about or if you had a poor sat but you were three in your class does that outweigh it or if you were 60 in your class but you had the best sat scores or do they really just kind of combine the two together like equally
1: so they they don't combine the two and and different schools are doing different things with this okay. in fact there's there's uh, an interesting trend happening among the selective schools where they're making SATs or subject tests optional. So I would rather be the student with the, who's three in the class. Okay. Um, now, having said that, it would be really frustrating to be number three in the class and not have a good pretty good scores because yeah. the options will change. Um, but a student who has great testing and weak grades uh, is not in an optimal situation. Because okay. those grades reflect that, that he or she is not necessarily working to potential in the classroom. Okay. And the test score is showing, hey, guess what?
0: <laughs> yeah, we have a slacker on <laughs> we, our hands. We yeah. might be dealing with a slacker, <laughs>
1: right? Exactly. Um, the In the highly selective range of schools, you really want to have the grades and the test
0: scores. Okay. All right. Fair enough. And then the, the uh, extracurriculars, that's just, I guess, uh, the next differentiating factor that the selection team would be looking at?
1: Yeah, and that's when it really starts to get fun and interesting yeah. because every student is different. And, um, and the landscape of what students can do is so, is so interesting and wide at this point because there's so much accessible to them, whether they're doing something using technology or they're involved with community service or they're on a presidential campaign or they're working on an environmental sustainability project in their high school. Um, there's so much that students can do yeah. to express their interests, and there's no wrong answer. So to me, that's the most exciting part of the work is helping students figure out what they love to do, yeah. and and how they can do it in a way that admissions officers will understand.
0: Got it, got it. And now, if we have that student, I'm I'm just thinking of a few things here, and they have all their grades together. They're they're involved in their extracurricular activities. What's like the first thing that they should be looking at? Um, actually, two questions as far as what I was going to say. The second part is kind of what college do I want to go to? Are they like looking geography wise, size of college, um, big classroom, small classroom, some of those things. And maybe if we could kind of start there, like what should the student be uh, thinking? Like, what's, like How do we start that conversation with a child that's like, I don't know where I want to go?
1: So you just hit on a couple of the really great first questions to ask. Are there geographical limitations to what you might consider? For some students, they only want to look at a college that they can get to by car Um, or they're totally open to flying and shipping their stuff. Uh, So that already is is a really important question. I've had students come to me and say, you have to get me out of this cold weather. (laughs) I just I, I will go anywhere if it's warm. Okay. Um, and then I have other students who love to ski. And so they want to be up north. They want to make sure, or out west, like they want to be near a mountain. Yeah. Um, so we do talk about geography. We talk about how geography might influence their experience. Um, and then we do talk about size. And the interesting thing about size is that it may be easy for us as adults to think, oh, 2,600 people. That makes sense. Or, wow, 10,000 people. I can picture that. But students really can't. Mm-hmm. Um they, they think that if they go to a small high school, a small college is going to be the same. Or if they go to a big high school, a big campus is going to feel like, oh, I, I totally have this. Like, I've got this. So I explained college size to, pe- to students by asking them how they want their day to feel as it relates to interacting with their friends. Do they, do they want to, you know, text in the morning and say, hey, where are we getting lunch? Or do they want to be able to just walk into a dining hall and know they're going to meet somebody they know? Um, you know, how how many people do they think they might want to pass who look familiar on a quad or on a path to their class? And there are campuses that are big enough that you're getting to your next class by a bus or by car. You may not run into your friends. Yep. And then there are campuses that are intimate enough that you're actually walking across a quad and passing your three best friends on yeah, your way to class. Yeah, saying hi
2: to everybody. Yep. Right.
1: And students have a pretty good feel for that when I, when, I make, when I explain it that way. They kind of know themselves socially, and they, they kind of know, you know, I'd really like to just walk into a dining area and, and know that I didn't text my friends, but I'm going to run into them. Yeah. Or... The other, you know, I'm totally fine that like we make plans where to eat the night before. Or maybe we just eat in the same place every day because we have our place. You know, they they know themselves. Yeah. So I try to give context around some of the questions.
0: That's interesting. I like that. That's a good way to look at it. And as they have that conversation, it, it, your business obviously is a large industry nowadays as, as college has expanded. And I do think, you know, especially here in the Northeast, you're kind of at that forefront of it, just seeing what you've done. What would you say to the parent that says, okay, I understand I see a lot of that stuff, what Emily's doing in the news, but we have a guidance counselor at school. Like, what's the difference? Like, why would I go to one or the other? Doesn't the guidance counselor already do all that stuff? How do you answer that? Like, what is that difference?
1: So I would say, yeah, a good guidance counselor does. Um, okay. Does a lot of what I do. Um, but they, they may be limited by the number of students they have and the number of hours that they work in a day. Um, they, they may not be available to their students after school hours um, or on weekends. And, you know, look, frankly, I know a lot about this field. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've been in it for a long time. Sure. Um, and I think that the role of the school counselor is extremely important. But for families that are starting to ask questions about college in ninth or tenth grade or even fall of junior year. In many high school settings, those students don't have access to a college counselor yet. In many, the vast majority of high school settings, students start to be invited to talk about college with a counselor in spring of junior year. Okay. And as far as I'm concerned, so much has happened by that point.
0: Like what? Well, what are they students missing?
1: Have chosen. They've talked about extracurriculars. They've been building their extracurricular life. They've been choosing classes. They've been choosing summer activities. They've been taking standardized tests. Yep. They've been doing all of that kind of on their own. So the families that work with me want to have guidance through that. They, they want to have more access to an advisor um, earlier on and more often, more more regularly. Um, okay. I can't make the claim that there aren't school counselors who have the depth of knowledge I have I think there there really are some incredible school counselors um, but but a lot of families want something more um, more more time more access deeper attention to their specific students needs okay and um, and I think that that in those cases there is a service to be provided okay now, you're talking about the growth of the industry and all of the different things that are available and I think that, th- that that growth is is a sign that families want more help. Sure. Um, so, yeah, it didn't come out of nowhere. That's correct. Right. Yep. So how, how they want the help and how much help they want and what they want it to look like varies from family to family. And what's available in the industry is very wide. So there are... You know there are test prep companies that offer hourly college help, and then there are people like me who work with a very small number of families, and and it's just me. Yeah. You know they get me, um, and I don't offer hourly. You yep. know I'm kind of an all in. Got it. So. Uh, so you start so a little bit earlier. School counselors, yeah. they're great, um, and they're super important in the process. Definitely. But I but but there's more to be discussed, and okay. I think the families that want that. Um, seek it
0: so is like your industry is the value you're helping a kid out of the million colleges out there find the right one or you're helping them where otherwise they would have gotten to a B school where now they're getting into one of the the elite or the a rated schools
1: I would say both
0: yeah and how would they so how if you can give us a little bit of the secret sauce here like if they are someone that says oh I can't get into that school I'm looking at this tier how can you maybe bump them up or what, what exercises or what are you telling them to do maybe to get them into that kind of next echelon of schools?
1: One of the things that I think really keeps students in a particular band is curricular rigor is, is how hard the classes are that they're taking in high school. And for a lot of students, that rigor is, is not for them. Mm -hmm. And so in that case, I can't, I can't change that. And I wouldn't want to. Um,
0: as in like to get to that next echelon, you always want to see them maybe push to a harder course load?
1: Well, they should be take, taking the harder course load to be viable in those applicant pools. So
0: what if they example, don't do uh, as well there? Like, So you're saying maybe they'd prefer like a C in that high course as opposed to a B or A grade in an advanced course as opposed to the honors?
1: I don't know that I would ever make a case for a student to take a class where they're going to get a C. Okay. But when I was working at it at Columbia and all the way through to today, families always ask, is it better to have a B in an AP class or an A in regular? Mm -hmm. And the reality is it's apples to oranges because the student who's choosing the challenge is in the game to be considered at a school that's highly selective. The student who is not choosing the challenge isn't even a candidate.
0: Fair enough, makes sense. Okay, so they they do have to grasp that reality that they've got to step up to the plate to that that harder course load.
1: They do, to... and and for some students that that rigor comes very naturally. It's where they need to be, or they're bored. Yep. So my concern, always, especially when sharing general information like this, is. That there may be a student who isn't going to do well in the harder classes. They will struggle. They will be sad. Yeah. I don't want that student to take the harder classes. I want to talk to that student about the colleges that are going to be excited about the classes they take.
0: Got it. Okay. But
1: there are students who are strong enough academically where they could be taking the harder classes and they're just a little bit afraid of the challenge or they're afraid of the possibility that they don't get an A+. Yeah that's a student I want to talk to about the fact that not taking the harder classes will limit their options
0: yeah and they need a little push yes okay okay that, that all makes sense and now if if what are if you can clue us into some of the deadlines so I know you said you, you want to start early maybe as like a sophomore start thinking maybe pursuing you know a, a course load that matches their potential so that they're having some more rigor there Um, Then, like, what's next? What are some key dates of, I should visit a college, I should be talking with the admissions team at that college, or if at all, I should be applying? Um, If you can walk us through a little bit of that, you know, just so people have an idea of what they're getting into.
1: Sure. So. Junior year is the biggest year for college visits. I think that's when students start to have enough grades to have an idea of what they could reasonably look at. Mm -hmm. Um, They might have some test scores by that point, too, so they have a guess at kind of where they fit in the admissions landscape. So a lot of families do a big push for college visits in junior year. I like to see maybe one or two local college visits in 10th grade if a family can swing it because... We're all all sitting here talking about college in this grown up way because either we went to college or we have visited colleges. We just we think we know what it's about. But a student who's never seen a campus doesn't even know, like, what is this thing that everybody's telling me I'm supposed to want and work hard for? Like, how do they know? So I think there's a lot of value to taking a sophomore to a nearby college campus, either for a game or a lecture or an event that they're hosting um, in a a casual way, yes, there's value to information sessions and tours. And certainly if the student is not too anxious about that, they could do that too. Mm -hmm. But even just walking on a campus and getting to see what it's all about, um, I think has real value. So that's the first thing I would think about. Okay. Um, certainly by spring of junior year, families should be visiting colleges with a thoughtful college list and with a real sense of what could be happening here. You know, you don't want to go take a student to see 10 colleges that 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 are so out of reach that you're just like Wasting dangling time. a carrot in front yeah. of them that they're never going to be able to reach. Um, so a thoughtful college visit is is really important. Um, applications are due for early decision at most schools either november 1st or november 15th of the student's senior year okay. and then regular decision tends to be january 1st of the senior year
0: why would you do one versus the other
1: early decision versus regular decision. correct
0: yeah
1: ah so this is a big topic the early part of the process um early decision gives a student an opportunity to make a commitment to the college that they're applying to and early decision by definition means that if a student gets in, that is the school they will attend. They're expected to withdraw any other applications. Wow. And they are expected to arrive on campus.
0: So early decision, like you're, you're committed. You're committed. You get accepted, you're there.
1: That's right. Okay. Uh, the timeline for early decision is that November 1st or November 15th deadline, and the student hears by mid-December.
0: Okay. So Do they get preferential treatment, like in the the review by the selection committee?
1: Well, there does seem to be a statistical advantage to applying early decision.
0: Okay. Yeah. So that's maybe your reach school, or if I could get any anywhere, I might as well go early for that school.
1: So it should be a reach. It should be a reasonable reach. I don't love like Hail Mary passes early yep. <laughs> decision. It's not the most strategic approach. Okay. Um, but yes, it's it makes sense. If a student has a, re- a reach that's reasonable, that that would be an early decision choice. Okay.
0: How many schools do people usually apply to? Is there any number like, hey, you really want to narrow it down to like five applications? Or
1: Five would be few in this landscape.
0: Really? My okay.
1: students typically apply to between eight and 12 colleges. Got or it. they're prepared to do so. If they get an early decision, then then there's that. That's it. Yep. Um, I do want to back up with uh, the early thing, though. And I want to just talk about early action, Okay, which is another early program that colleges can choose to use as well. Um, An early action is non-binding. So it follows the same timeline of a November 1st or a November 15th deadline and news around mid-December. But the student is not bound to attend. Student can continue in the process, apply regular decision to any number of schools, hear from those, and then make a decision. Okay. So some students do end up choosing their early action school. Yep. Um, but I think it's important to know that within that early landscape, there are, there are those two big options, early decision and early action. And then getting a little even more nuanced, there's restricted early action, which is a very small number of schools, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, and Stanford. And restricted early action allows a student to, to, to turn down the offer, Right. So, the so these are going to be like your most coveted students, right? I would assume, yeah. yeah. So they're okay. not bound to attend, but they are restricted in that they cannot apply early anywhere else that is not a state school.
0: Okay. So interesting. I
1: just throw that out there for the parents listening <laughs> who have kids who are Ivy bound. Um, there are some real nuances to the process when you get into that that group of schools.
0: Got it. Okay, and then everything has to be in, you said by January 1st? Most for like schools the have a
1: January 1 deadline.
0: There are okay. lots
1: of other deadlines. There, there are schools that have February deadlines. There are schools that have rolling admission where they're admitting students as the applications come in and their they're rolling, they're rolling gates are open until the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so families really do have to do their homework. They have to know, based on the student's college list, what the deadlines are. But, But the majority of schools have those early deadlines that we talked about, and then they have a January 1 or a January 15 deadline.
0: Okay, and if I could just throw you a curveball, I mean, in today's landscape, what's the best school out there, if you had to pick? <laughs>
1: Obviously, Vassar,
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I don't- So not your former employer, not Columbia?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on, I'm true to alma mater. Um, no, you know, I don't think there is a best school. I think there are schools that are very popular, Yep. Um, you know, I see a lot of applications to the University of Pennsylvania, a lot of applications to Washington University in St. Louis. Um, my students tend to like um, brown and and Dartmouth and I you know and Dickinson is popular like it's really uh this year I saw a lot of like bowden got a lot of love. It yep. really go like varies from year to year. so it year. changes
0: because I but feel like I don't if think you read that a best you okay. Know? So, like, when they do the report every year, whatever it is, U.S. World News, I think mm-hmm. it is, it always seems like you're going to have uh, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, like, just vying for that top spot, or at least that's how I recall it. You know, what what is that? What, what's the allure there? Is it just the name? Is it literally the smartest kids on the face of the planet are landing right there? You know, what's the difference between those versus all the ones that you just listed of the Dartmouths, Dickinson's, Washington, and so forth?
1: So, yes, some of the countries, and I would argue the world's brightest students, are going to those schools that okay. you just named. Um, those schools also get a lot of applications, and they have very low admit rates as a result. Okay, it's very hard to get into those schools. The reason why U.S. News and World Report is a little tricky to try to analyze is that they use a lot of different data points to create their algorithm, right, to, to create that list. And the reason why it like wiggles a little and like one year Princeton is better than Harvard is they're counting every factor. They're looking at alumni giving, for example. Yeah. You know, and and when they look at alumni giving, are they looking at the the actual dollars that are being donated or are they looking at alumni engagement and trying to figure out how many alumni are giving those are two very different things yes, right Interesting. so i've had friends say well if, if everyone gives a dollar then that still counts as alumni engagement but is that interesting if they're trying to figure out which school is getting more for their endowment yeah not really and they keep kind of tweaking which of those little details they're looking at so I think that's you know that's part of it Um, one thing that I that is also influencing the college uh, the US News and World Report list and a topic that I think is really important to touch on is the role of yield in the college admissions process Um, the yield is the percentage of admitted applicants who, who decide to attend a school and yield has started to be a factor that has so much weight in rankings that colleges are colleges are I'm going to say it manipulating how they <laughs> do how they make their admissions decisions to try to have a higher yield.
0: What do you mean by yield?
1: So let's say that you admit 10 students. Okay. And 8 decide to come to your school. You have an 80% yield. Okay. That would be very high.
0: All right. And so they're looking to get optimum yield. Yes. Closer to 100% then that looks better.
1: They want to optimize yield. OK. That's right. And it gets harder to optimize yield as students apply to more colleges.
0: That's why they do these restricted open actions, things like that.
1: That's why they're early program. It's one of the reasons. There are okay. lots of
0: different
2: reasons.
1: Um, but it's also why students are you're hearing probably from friends that there there's a lot of waitlisting happening. Students are getting waitlisted who look like they should have gotten in. Um, yield is becoming such a big part of the game and it's forcing students to express interest in a way that they didn't have to in the past it's it's forcing admissions officers to try to figure out well does it look like they're going to say yes and so you're you're and it really does come back a lot to us news and world report and the fact that like really it seems like like a game
0: like that they're trying to play here
1: Ye- the I call it the yield game. Yeah, I do think that yield has become an unfair component that is creating anxiety in the in families and in applicants. That that is a factor that wasn't as much of an obsession before.
0: Really, yeah. that's that's some interesting insight. And like, if I mean, just to course in, we look at that that top tier. Let's say of the Harvards, Princetons, et cetera. Who gets in there? Do do you have to be valedictorian? Do you need like a almost perfect SAT score? So they Like are there those, if you don't have it, see you later, don't even think about it?
1: If you go to an admissions, uh, an information session at one of those schools, they're actually going to tell you how many valedictorians and perfect SAT scores they turn away.
0: That they turn away?
1: Yes. So again, those are just the numbers, right? So should you be in the top of your class in the hardest classes available? Yes. Should you have test scores well into the 700s in every section you should um but who's getting in is so so much less a story about those numbers which yes have to be there to be in the landscape and and i think more a story of how students are expressing their passions and interests which goes back to what we were saying before about extracurricular life um i used to joke in in workshops that if you're not curing cancer, you know, don't bother to, you know, you're not going to have a, you're not going to compete well in the extracurricular landscape of a highly selective school. And I and it okay. was a joke. You're like, ha curing cancer. Ugh. Yeah. Last year, I actually had a student who was doing work to cure cancer. Um, she happens to be at Harvard now. Um, really? But you, you really have to understand that the students who are interesting in those landscapes are doing amazing things. Yep. Yeah and it doesn't mean that students who are doing really great things aren't awesome people and aren't valuable and shouldn't be going to great colleges. Yeah. But Harvard has the opportunity to see students who are doing things like curing cancer. Yeah. Or like creating founding, Facebook like
0: in high school. Yeah. It's...
1: Founding NGOs that are trying to address major world issues that they have become passionate about themselves because they read and they're curious and they're and they're concerned and they're active, Yeah, those are the types of kids who who are very interesting to those How schools. much,
0: in that respect, how much does networking play into that and alumni and connections? I mean, and we could talk a little bit about it too, like, the, you know, the, obviously the recent scandals that have plagued so many of these schools is, you know, obviously it's a factor because kids were getting in that way. Um, so, I mean, do you, it, does it help to have a connection, to write a letter, to get a reference? Are those really impactful to try and get into some of those reach schools? They can be. Yeah.
1: They can be. Um, especially for students who are already really qualified. Okay. You know, you look, you look great already. And now someone who is instrumental on that campus is going to express an interest in you. Um, that can have an influence just like getting a job. Yeah. You know?
0: So there is that respect of, you know, you guys look equal, but, oh, his dad's a senator or her mom's an actress or something like that. They think that they can rope that into the school, that, that family or that name. Like, that's, that happens. We know that happens. Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: I don't think anyone is trying to pretend that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and the thing about the scandal is that the scandal went way beyond that. Um, people may have misgivings about the fact that that goes on. You know, that the child of a senator may have an advantage. Yeah. Um, We could talk about that till the cows come home. Sure. But the reality is that that is how our country functions. That is how our education system has functioned. There are going to be students who have some other advantage that is going to make them more interesting in that applicant pool. Again, assuming that it looks like they can do the work there. Yeah. Um, The scandal went way beyond that. The scandal... Involved the bribery of coaches who were bringing candidates to admissions who weren't even athletes.
0: It just sounds crazy.
1: It does. So might it be troubling to some that a senator's child has a better shot? It might. Should it be troubling to all of us that a coach was paid one hundred thousand dollars to say that a child could sail who couldn't even sail? Like they're saying not only does this child sail. They sail so well that I want them on my team. And coaches do have that opportunity to give names to admissions of students who are such talented athletes yep. that they, they're going to have them on their teams. Yep. And then if the student meets certain admissions criteria, the coach does have that window to say, okay, I really want this one or yep. I really want these three. And how that plays out varies from campus to campus. But sure. what happened in the scandal on the, on the athletic side is that coaches were selling those spots wow. to students who were not even athletes, um, which is why you and then saw, they would like,
0: land at the school and they, would they even play that sport or did they? They, they wouldn't. That's they insane. Wouldn't. Yeah. They wouldn't.
1: They they couldn't. That that just it was just it was bribery. Yeah, downright bribery.
0: It was all smoke and mirrors. Yeah, to get yeah. Them in.
1: So that's a real problem, and and that that has given admissions offices pause, and it has given mostly athletic departments pause, and there's discussion of, you know, deeper oversight when a coach is giving names to an admissions officer um, to make sure that the student actually does play lacrosse.
0: Hmm. That's uh, that's wild, but I guess it is, it's such a competitive, um, you know, landscape right now. Everybody's thinking about college. And maybe one of the the last things that we could touch on in this vein is the the financial aspect, which obviously that's, as a financial advisor, so many of the conversations I have. Some people look at at an NYU or a Princeton just to grab some names and they see the sticker price and go, You've got to be kidding me. That looks astronomical how much that's going to cost. Is there a lot of aid in that respect? Because then you hear some people say, don't be deterred by that. Those super expensive ones have deep pocketbooks they could then help out with uh, versus maybe a state school where what you see is what you get. Like, how does how does that play out? Like, are you trying to help your students not only get in, but also get scholarships? Or with the higher schools, should you just be happy to get in the door and then, yeah, you better be ready to pay?
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. So I just want to say about Princeton. Um, Princeton is a no debt school, which means that students who would need financial aid leave without debt. So talking about deep pockets, Princeton is, is one of the schools where if a student attends with financial need, they don't they don't come out with debt at all.
0: They so they it. just kind of pay what they can and then pretty much. The rest is forgiven in a way. Yes. Okay.
1: So it's all grant basically from the school. Interesting. Um, the sticker price, when I think about sticker price, I I know there are families for whom it's not going to be an issue. There are families for whom it's going to be such a big issue that the school is going to support that student. And then there's the people in the middle. Correct. Yeah. And the middle is probably your clients, too, like people who are trying to save for college. They're trying to make sure that they've set aside enough that their student can, their child can choose a college without worrying about being able to pay. Um, and... That I think that is the population that becomes the most anxious about the sticker price because it might look based on their financials like they can pay the sticker price and they might have to. Yeah. Um, so I would be careful when when assuming that a school that's very expensive is gonna be like a high debt situation, for the example like Princeton that I gave. Yeah. Um but and schools that are well-endowed do have generous financial aid offerings, typically. Okay. Um, it's really a question of qualifying for financial aid.
0: Yeah. And then that's, is that more financial driven, like a true financial aid? Or is it more on your academics, your extracurriculars, et cetera, we're going to give out more scholarships?
1: So this, this really depends on the type of school. And if you're talking about the highly selective schools that we've been focusing on today, there's not a lot of merit money given. Um, okay there may be a couple of very specialized fellowships for very like really exceptional students
0: but by and large Um, if you can pay you're gonna pay
1: by and large if you can pay you're gonna pay unless it's a school that is specifically giving generous scholarships so for example i've seen a lot of twenty thousand dollar scholarships come from tulane let's say okay they they are uh very actively interested in bringing in very talented students and they're offering money, um, that, you know, students can take or leave, I suppose. Yep. Um, but, but a lot of schools in the more selective universe are not giving money based on merit. The, the argument is that everybody here would be qualified. Yep. <laughs> everybody here has merit. Yep. Um, so they have to give based on need
0: okay so they're looking more for that that genius child that's also coming from maybe not the best background and that's who's gonna get not only accepted but also get the financial aid well the financial aid is
1: given based on demonstrated need yeah so if admissions has decided this is a student they want to take then financial aid puts a package together um, so there may be schools where those two functions are a little more commingling but at the schools that I have the most exposure to they are separate entities
0: okay that's interesting so I mean do you see like a campus there where you have I mean the the ultra wealthy that are saying we're just paying the full sticker price no problem and then the lower side of we're getting financial aid because I could see that being a lot of struggle for the middle class that says you know my kid got into Princeton they're telling us you can pay, but my goodness, look at how much we're going to shell out for four years now. Um, I imagine that could possibly be a deterrent if there's other schools that maybe they're getting scholarships from.
1: It can, and that's a conversation that definitely families need to have, especially as you pointed out, kind of in the middle, yeah, um, where on paper it looks like you could do this, but in daily practice, yeah, it's gonna it, it would change be the tight. landscape for the family. Yeah, um, so. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a topic that doesn't get a ton of airtime yep. because nobody's really feeling so sorry for upper middle class families who look yeah, like they can yep. pay for college. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the reality is it could be quite a strain. Huh.
0: That's interesting. And now if I could just kind of segue into uh, our lightning round, which is uh, one of the, Was the this favorite. Whole
1: thing, a lightning round?
0: <laughs> I know there's there's so much here we could talk about. <laughs> I feel like we're just scratching the surface. There, maybe there'll be a part two or something in the future. Um, but our, our listeners love this, and we'll just kind of dive into some just quick questions about you, know, you your background, uh, just to get you know, know you a little bit better, if that's okay. Sure. So one of the first questions we have up here is, what is your favorite book?
1: Hmm. My favorite book is People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks. It is a historical fiction piece about the Sarajevo Haggadah.
0: Interesting. I haven't now heard that I've one. I've totally geeked out. <laughs> and I'll take it a step further. What's your favorite movie?
1: That's harder and not as geeky at all. It's probably um, like Sweet Home Alabama or some some chick flick.
0: Okay, fair <laughs> enough. And if you had a quote or a motto to live by that you'd want to share with everybody, what would that be?
1: Hmm. So a motto that I think is interesting, I don't know that it's my mantra per se, but I I do often remind people that just because you can doesn't mean you should.
0: Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Okay. I like it. And uh, on the lighter side, what's your favorite food? Indian. Indian. Okay. I love Indian food. What's uh, your favorite destination, vacation, or travel that you've had?
1: The coolest destination I've been to is Bali, and I would love to get back there. Um, but I also just love like time in Vermont, okay, New England,
0: very cool. And you're obviously very busy running this business. How often? How much do you sleep a night?
1: I'm a really good sleeper. Really? Yes.
0: Eight hours? Nine hours? I can
1: do eight hours. I sleep from eleven to seven.
0: Awesome. Most yeah. of the business owners I talk to, they they're not able to achieve it. <laughs> it. Takes discipline.
1: I um I don't function well without sleep. I can still work really well, but I get grouchy. Okay. And I prefer myself not grouchy, <laughs>
0: yeah, which nobody means wants I have that. to
1: sleep and eat.
0: <laughs> Very well then. Very cool. And did you have any mistake or regret as you started this business that uh, you look back on and wish you hadn't done or could do things differently?
1: I do have one thing I wish I had played differently, and I don't know that it's a business thing, but it's a lesson. Um, many years ago, a client and his wife gave me a gift um that was that was fur and i don't i don't use fur and i'm not like you know i'm wearing leather shoes like i'm not you know but i just fur made me really uneasy and when they handed it to me the wife said if you don't think you're going to use this i really like it and you could totally give it to me and i would be totally fine with that and i took her at her word and i said you know i have to be real like I'm I'm not going to use it. If you would love it, (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm happy for you to have it. And I really regret that because I've learned over the years and I learned visiting places where hospitality is a really big part of the culture and things like that, that to give a gift back to someone is just not – not a good call. <laughs> so <laughs> I think if I had to live that again, I was very young at the time. I was in my mid-twenties. Yeah. Um, they were not that much older than me, in fact, or younger than me. Like, we were contemporaries. Sure. Um, but I realize now that that was probably not that the best That rocked the boat move. a little bit. Yep. Yeah, just, you know, that might have insulted them, even okay. though maybe she was happy to have it back. Yeah. Um, and maybe she really did want it, because I think she really did want it. Um. <laughs> That was probably rude. Yeah. And if I had it to do again, I would have accepted it gracefully and given it to my cousin who <laughs> there you loves go. fur. <laughs>
0: and what was your favorite subject when you were a kid? English. English.
1: I love writing.
0: Okay. And what did you want to be when you, as a child, what did you want to be when you grew up?
1: I think I thought I wanted to be a lawyer for a while. I always thought I might want to be a singer. Okay. Because I am a singer, in fact. Um, but... I had a great guidance counselor and I've always been fascinated by the college process. So I think as soon as I started thinking about a job to get, um, that would give me flexibility to sing and to, you know, have a family and do all these things. I actually did think that admissions consulting could be cool.
0: Very cool. And any hero or role model that you aspire to as a child?
1: Hmm. no
0: no okay so you kind of just found your own way
1: yeah that's really interesting i don't think that i had i don't think there that i met anyone who i felt like i want to be that person i want to do exactly what they did
0: yeah okay
1: probably bits and pieces of different people who i met along the way my father had his own business so i think i knew that that was an option yeah that people could have their own business and have a family and do all that yeah um but, but I made a lot of very different choices from, from his, so it wouldn't be complete to say that like I followed his exact path.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Well, everyone, that was the lightning round with our guest, Emily Walper. And is there any parting advice or final words that you'd like to share with our listeners today?
1: It may seem ironic to say this, but I really hope that students don't pin all of their self-worth on the college process. There's so much more to life and it's it's one piece in their journey and yes it does pave a path and yes there's so much to be experienced in college and obviously i'm quite passionate about college but i'm even more interested in how people become people
0: interesting okay there, there was just so much here that we discussed today, and I, I know we could go on for hours. But um, for the sake of time, I want to thank everybody for tuning in today to the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna, and please give us a good review, uh, share on Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. We're pretty much everywhere again. So uh, thank you so much for being loyal listeners, and we'll see you next week.
2: The Kaderna podcast is for informational purposes only. Individual situations may vary, and the information should be relied upon only when coordinated with individual professional advice. Guardian and its subsidiaries do not provide tax, legal, social security, student loan, mortgage, or real estate advice. Listeners should contact their own tax, accounting, or legal advisors, or the social security department in this matter. All investments and investment strategies contain risk and may lose value. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PASS, 300 Broad Acres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey 07003. Securities, product services, and advisory services are offered through PASS, a registered Broker dealer and investment advisor. 973-24-4420. Financial representative the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PASS is an indirect wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Caderna Financial Team and International Planning Alliance, LLC, are not affiliates or subsidiaries of PASS or Guardian. Caderna Financial Team is a division of International Planning Alliance, LLC, a general agency of Guardian. Pass is a member of FINRA, SIPC. California Insurance License Number OK04194. Content of the Caderna Podcast is copyrighted by Brian M. Caderna. all rights reserved. Any redistribution or reproduction of part or all of the content in any form is prohibited without prior permission. From the Kaderna podcast. The views and opinions expressed herein may not be those of Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, or any of its subsidiaries or affiliates. Guardian does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of, of the information or opinions presented herein. Any third party materials referenced cannot be endorsed or verified by Guardian and are used as the opinion of the author. Guardian, its subsidiaries or affiliates do not provide or issue or advise for mortgages. This material contains the current opinions of the author, but not necessarily those of Guardian or its subsidiaries, and such opinions are subject to change without notice.